Thank you, Todd. Good morning again, Christ Central. Uh, as, thank you. As Todd said, we will uh, be bringing God's Word to you this morning. We're continuing in our sermon series in the book of Exodus. That today will be our last um, in the sermon series uh, before we break for our Advent series. We'll be looking at Exodus 32 this week. And then after the holidays, we're going to be going back in January and looking at the Ten Commandments, each one by one, leading up to Easter Sunday. So we're going to hunker down in Exodus for a little bit longer. Um, but this morning, we will be looking at Exodus 32. And if you're able, I would invite you to stand. Uh, we do this out of reverence for God's Word. Um, this is the truth that we submit to and uh, this, these are the words of life, and so we stand for this word. I'm going to be reading chapter 32, verses 1 through 20. Verse 1, When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we, don't, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in, your ears of, in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hands and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down for your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains, and to consume them from the face of the earth. Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of, bringing on his people. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand. 
tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back, they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. And Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted. He said to Moses, there is a noise of war in the camp. But Moses said, it is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and dancing, Moses' anger burned hot. And he threw the tablets out of his hand and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to power, powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. The prophet Isaiah says the grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word endures forever. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would speak to us now through your word. Lord, we believe that this book, it is the writing of God. It is your word, and we believe that it's true. And so, God, we ask that you would use it now in our hearts, in our lives. Lord, allow me, your servant, to get out of the way that your truth might land in our hearts. Father, would you give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to understand. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. If you were here last week, you heard Pastor Daniel preach on the Ten Commandments, one of the more famous texts in all of Scripture, Exodus 20. And contrary to popular belief, Daniel argued last week that the commandments of God, the law, really is good for us. Kind of like broccoli, he said. And I don't know about you, but I personally left church on Sunday pretty convinced. Convinced that these laws, these rules, really are gifts from God. Gifts from a Father who loves me and desperately wants to reveal to me how to walk with Him, how to enjoy Him, how to enjoy His creation, how to enjoy one another. And yet, not even an hour after I left this building last Sunday... I found myself breaking these rules again. Not just one of them, but lots of them. I found myself violating the Sabbath. I found myself coveting other people's things. I found myself not telling the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. And unfortunately, I could go on. So what happened? How in the world could I leave this place so convinced that God's law is good for me and yet within minutes just throw it out the window? And the answer is, believe it or not, that there is a war going on inside of me right now. There's a battle happening inside of me for the affections of my heart. There are other gods, if you will, competing gods, seeking to persuade me to believe that their rules are better than God's rules. That living for them and not the God of the Bible will truly satisfy. And my sin, my disobedience, all of it is in fact a result of believing the lies of these false gods, these idols. As church father Tertullian 
once said, the principal crime of the human race is idolatry. For although each individual sin retains its own proper feature, although it is destined to judgment under its own proper name, yet they all fall under the general heading of idolatry. What Tertullian is saying is that our fight against all sin is ultimately a fight against the idols of our hearts. And there's no better place to look at idolatry than Exodus 32. The Apostle Paul himself references this very story in 1 Corinthians 10 when he said, Now these things, this event that happened, took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. He goes on to say, Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. Then he quotes Exodus 32, The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And so our task this morning is to heed Paul's warning in reference to this text, to allow this text to be an example to us that empowers us, Lord willing, to overcome the idols of our hearts. I have three points this morning that we see here in the text. First, the idols of Israel's heart. Secondly, we'll look at the idols of our own hearts. And then third, we'll look at the idol burning. How do we burn them up? So let's begin. The idols of Israel's hearts. Before we can begin to understand the specific idols in our own hearts, we must first understand what an idol is. And what better way to do that by looking at this idol worship here in Exodus 32. Now, it's easy for us to look at this text and simply deduce that we must not melt down our jewelry and fashion it into an animal that we can bow down to. That that's the message of Exodus 32. And I assume most of you in the room have never done that, so you might think that you're off the hook. However, when we read the whole of Scripture, it becomes quite clear that God is, in fact, much more concerned about the, the affections of our hearts, of what's going on underneath the hood, than our actions. Therefore, the true idolatry of Exodus 32, the idolatry that the Apostle Paul was warning us against, is the idolatry of the heart, the sin beneath the sin as many theologians have termed it. So look again with me at verse 1 as we seek to uncover what is the sin beneath the sin. What is it that's motivating God's people to create this graven image and worship it? Why? Why did they do this? The text says, verse 1, that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain. Now why is that such a big deal? Why is Moses' perceived tardiness important? In order to understand this, we have to recognize the context in which Israel is living. Just because God has taken care of the Egyptians doesn't mean that all of Israel's worries are gone. In ancient Near Eastern society, you always lived in the constant threat of conquest. That was part of life. And when you were conquered by another nation, it was not pretty. 
Men were often slaughtered, women were raped and killed, children were cast aside. So there was much reason in this society, in this culture, to be afraid. We in America miss this because safety and security are not desired, but rather expected. I mean, we're talking about building a wall so that we, the safest country in the world, can feel more safe and secure. We don't understand what it's like to be dependent upon God for safety and security, but the Israelites did. They knew what it was like to be in danger. But the thing that kept their fear in check was that God's presence was with them. This was the defining characteristic of Israel. This is what made them unique, different from all other nations, that God was with them. And they knew this was true because God revealed it to them in plain sight. We read this, we read this before, but Exodus 13 says, And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they may travel by day and night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. So they could see this tangible expression of God's presence. And if the pillar wasn't enough, God sent his ambassador to dwell among them, Moses. When Moses was the one whom God relayed his messages to, and then Moses would come and he'd bring the very words of God to God's people. So in a world that demanded one be afraid, Israel found peace because they could see with their own eyes and hear with their own ears that God was with them. But then comes chapter 32. God's people are hanging out in the desert, and militarily speaking, they are completely exposed. They were camped out at the foot of this mountain, Mount Sinai, and their backs are against the wall. They have nowhere to run, and then the cloud disappears. God goes up on this mountain, and then their fearless leader, the mediator, the only one whom God was willing to communicate with, he leaves too. And all of a sudden, Israel is alone. And these tangible expressions of God's presence are nowhere to be found, and they get scared. They get scared again. And so what do they do? Well, they go find Aaron... And they demand that he give them the security that they are so desperate for. Aaron, make us feel safe again. Hey, Aaron, we need something, verse 1, to go before us. Do you hear the parallel from Exodus 13? God was the one who was going before them, but he's gone. And not only that, but Moses is gone too. So we need a replacement and we need it now because we will surely die. If you don't intervene, Aaron. And so now you can start to see what's going on underneath the surface, if you will, the sin, beneath the sin. You see, it's not the calf that Israel was worshiping, but rather the idol of security and control that they're worshiping. In making the calf, they were declaring that feeling safe was their true God. They wanted it more than anything else. And that ensuring that they were protected and cared for was more important than obeying God. And it's here that we begin to understand the nature of idolatry, how it works, how it corrupts our hearts and controls our behavior. Martin Lloyd-Jones says it this way. He says, an idol is anything in our lives that occupies the place that should be occupied by God alone. Anything that is central in my life 
anything that seems to be essential, an idol is anything by which I live and on which I depend, anything that holds such a controlling position in my life that it moves and rouses and attracts so much of my time and attention, my energy and money. What's so important to note in this definition is that heart, heart idols, what Lloyd-Jones is talking about and what Moses is getting at here, is more often than not they're birthed from healthy, God-given desires. Our idolatry starts out as a good thing. The Greek word that is used in this uh, text in the Septuagint, the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, is epithumia. It's best translated not as evil desires, which it's often translated in your Bibles, but rather over-desires. And what Moses is getting at, and Paul later, is that this idea that an idol is not the error of desiring evil things, but it's the error of desiring good things too much. There's nothing wrong with Israel wanting to be safe and secure, right? That's a good thing. But when that becomes the ultimate thing, when that becomes all that we want, the thing that has control of our hearts, we're in trouble. That's when idolatry has set in. Tim Keller says it this way, when a finite value has been elevated to centrality and imagined as a final source of meaning, then one has chosen a God. One has a God when a finite value is viewed as that without which one cannot receive life joyfully. Even more practically said, Bob Goodsword says, idolatry arises the moment the end indiscriminately justifies every means which is exactly what's happening to Israel. The end of feeling safe and secure justified whatever means necessary. So they were willing to deliberately disobey God for the very God that they worshipped was not the God of Jacob and Isaac and Israel, but it was the God of safety and security. For Israel to be safe and secure went from being a good thing to an ultimate thing, that which they could not live without. And so they built this calf. That's how idolatry works. So now that we've seen this disease, if you will, at work, let's try to bring this a little bit closer to home. Because as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, we are in grave danger of doing the very same thing. So although most of us are not practicing cattle worship, I believe that heart idolatry is rampant in all of us. It's rampant in me. So the question then is, how do we go about identifying? How do we seek out, discover, find these idols in our hearts? And for me, the best way that I've discovered to go about identifying the idols of my heart is by following problem emotions back to their source. Problem emotions being fear, anger, and despair. And it's when these emotions become overpowering that we realize that idolatry is at work in our hearts. Let's look at Israel first, and then we're going to point the finger at ourselves. Israel is terrified. They're afraid, right? But if they had traced that fear back to its source, they would have realized that that fear was birthed out of a concern for losing their safety and security. 
If they had traced it back, they would have realized that their functional God had become the idol of security, evidenced by the fact that they were willing to deliberately disobey and disregard the one true God. Now, thank goodness you and I never do that, right? Wrong. We do it just the same. I'm going to share an example of all three of these problem emotions in my own life, ways that I've been able to see my own idols through tracing back these emotions. First, fear. When we think about fear, fear is is birthed out of the uncertainty of the future, right? We feel afraid when the achievement of our idol, that which we worship, is uncertain. For example, for me, it's very common for, for me in my sermon prep to get afraid, to get very afraid. This past week was no different. I was studying and prepping, and it just wasn't coming together, and I knew that what was there wasn't very good. And I felt the fear well up inside of me. And I don't know about you, but when I'm afraid, I want to run. I want to escape, which is what I did. So instead of sitting in the fear, I did something that ashamedly has become pretty common for me when I get scared. I pulled up my bank account online. And then I looked to my retirement, some college savings for my kids, all in hopes that it'll make the fear go away. Now let's trace that back. What's, what in the world's going on there? What's happening? See, fear, the problem emotion, is birthed out of that uncertainty. And so I was afraid of what would happen if I stand up here and I preach junk. Afraid of failure. Why? Because I worship your approval. I so desperately want you to like me. Your, your approval becomes that finite value that is the ultimate thing that I cannot live without. What about checking my finances? What's that all about? Well, you see, in my fear, in my uncertainty, I'm looking for some other idol that might be more certain. I'm hoping that the security of the accumulation of wealth will overpower my feelings of inadequacy in my own job. I'm seeking to substitute one idol for another, as John Calvin famously termed it. This is my heart, the idol factory, churning on all cylinders. What about anger? Anger is birthed out of blocked idols. When we feel like someone or something has hindered our ability to achieve that which we so desperately want. While I was in seminary, I worked for a company that allowed me to raise support, raise funds for the work that I was doing at a local church. And the long and short of this is that I was fired by this company because they claimed that I dealt unethically with my donors. And when this happened, I experienced anger like I never have before in my entire life. Rage would probably be the better word for what happened. And as a result of the rage, I wanted to destroy the organization, and particularly this man who was at the center of this organization. Vengeance was to be mine. I was going to take him down. And it took me some time to figure this out, but ultimately I was able to trace back the problem emotion of anger to realize the idol that was at play in my heart. And what I realized was the reason I was so angry was because never before had my character been challenged in this way. 
And what I began to realize that for me to be perceived as a godly man was ultimate. And the anger arose because this man was blocking that goal, that idol. And when someone gets in the way of our idols, we get angry, seek to hurt, destroy. Lastly, what about despair? Despair is birthed out of the awareness that an idol is unobtainable. I can't possibly have that which I so desire. A couple years ago, we were having our Maundy Thursday service here at Haytai, and this particular year, I was in charge of the flow and the structure of the evening. And managing that sort of thing historically has not been my strong suit. And that night, as a result of my poor communication, my lack of organization, people were confused all over the place as to what they were supposed to do and say when. And therefore, the flow of the evening was a mess. And it was my fault. But it gets worse. Each year when we finish this service, we end with a pastor standing in the doorway and, and, and the pastor proclaims, it is finished. And so this particular night, I concluded the service with this proclamation and then I walked out into the lobby to find my wife rocking one of our children. And she lovingly asked me, how did the service go? And my response was, I quote, complete disaster all the way around. And the reason I know the exact wording so well is because what I did not take into account is that my microphone was still on. (laughs) So the congregation, instead of walking out reflecting on the last words of Jesus, walk out reflecting on my stinging evaluation of the service. And as soon as I was informed of what happened, I wanted to crawl into a hole and die. Seriously, Uh, never before had I been so exposed as a failure, Uh, despair like I cannot measure. There was nothing that I could do about it. I was exposed. I messed up. And my deep longing to be approved of in that moment was shattered, completely unattainable, which produced this profound feeling of, I just want to die. Enough about me, please. (laughs) What about you? Amen, yeah. What are you afraid of? And how does that fear expose the uncertainty around the idols in your life, those things that you so desperately want? What are you angry about? And how does that anger reveal the idols that are being blocked in your life by someone or something? In what ways are you despairing? And how does that despair reveal the idols that you feel are completely unattainable to you? The question is not if you have idols, but what are they? And how are they hindering you from walking with and enjoying God? Brothers and sisters, as we prepare to look at the Ten Commandments in January, the only hope that we have of walking in obedience is for us to begin to do the hard work of identifying the idols of our hearts. Identifying those things that are seeking to overthrow God as the Lord of our life. So my challenge for you today is to spend some time this week, this month, following these problem emotions back to the source so that you might uncover these counterfeit gods 
in your heart. Thankfully, I, I refuse to just leave you here. Not only do we need to identify the idols of our heart, but we also need to, verse 20, we need to burn them up. We have to destroy them. So how do we do that? First step is we need to expose the idol for what it really is. Moses is determined to reveal to Israel the futility of their idol worship. And the way he does this, verse 20, is he burns up the idol and then he makes the Israelites drink the dust of the idol's remains. Certainly an unpleasant experience. Why would he do this? The reason why Moses did this is because he wanted the people to tangibly experience how unsatisfying the idol truly was. He wanted them to remember that sour taste as a reminder that these made-up gods can never truly give us what we want. And we must do the same. We must seek to recognize the ways in which our idols fail to deliver on their promises. While I was preparing this sermon, the truth is that looking to my bank account didn't make the anxiety go away, and it never will. It never will. All that it did was distract me for a moment from what was really going on in my heart. I need to drink that in. I need to allow the bitterness of the idol worship to sink in. And I charge you to do the same. Put your idols to the test. See if they truly deliver on their promises. And if not, we expose them as the frauds that they truly are. But unfortunately, that's only half the battle. Not only do we expose the weakness of our idols, but we must overpower them. You see, the common misconception when it comes to idolatry is that I can merely stop worshiping through mere willpower. Just stop it. Quit it. Don't do it anymore. But the truth is that idols not only have to be exposed, but they must be replaced. Thomas Chalmers, the famous Scottish minister says it this way, there is not one personal transformation in which the heart is left without an object of ultimate beauty and joy. The heart's desire for one particular object can be conquered, but, to, to, but its desire to have some object is unconquerable. The only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. Do you know what Moses was doing up on Mount Sinai while all this cow worshiping was happening? He was receiving instructions from God for the tabernacle. God was giving Moses the blueprint for worship and was creating a place where he, God, was going to dwell with his people until the Messiah came. And at the end of this book, Exodus, in chapter 40, God's people complete the tabernacle exactly the way that God designed it to be. And then this is what they say, starting, this is what God says, starting in verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the clouds settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Do you see it? Do you see what God's answer was to Israel's incessant idolatry? His answer was to reveal himself more fully to them. God's answer was to call his people to look closer at him, 
to see him in all his splendor and glory because God knew that then and only then would they realize that he is more beautiful, he is more majestic, he is more worthy than any idol you could ever come up with. That's what we do here. The call to worship is God saying, look at me. Each week he invites us to come here and to see him in all his glory and splendor. And what happens is it burns the idols up in our hearts. It throws them out. And all of a sudden we are compelled to worship the one true God. He replaces the junk in our hearts. That's the expulsive power of a new affection. There has to be something more beautiful. And God says, I, I am more beautiful. I am more beautiful than whatever's in your heart. Next week we begin our Advent season worship, and it's the celebration of the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I can't help but conclude by pointing out the parallels between our text and the Advent story. Verse 7 says that God saw what the people were doing, and in his response he says, Go down, Moses. Go down. And the psalmist gives us a commentary on what happens after this. This is Psalm 106, talking about our text. It says, Therefore God said he would destroy them had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. God sends his mediator Moses down to stand in the gap for his disobedient children so that his wrath might be turned away and that they might be preserved according to his covenant promise. Promises made to verse 13, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Brothers and sisters, this is so big. The Advent story, first and foremost, is the story of our Heavenly Father looking down on his disobedient children, and he says, go down, Jesus, go down. And King Jesus, he did it. He came down and he stood in the gap for us so that God's wrath might be turned away and that we might be preserved according to his covenant promises. That's the God who replaces the idols of our heart. That's the expulsive power of the gospel that Chalmers is talking about. And that, my friends, is what we rejoice in each and every week. That's why we're here. I hope and pray that you will come here each week and be exposed to that reality. And as a result, it will burn the idols in your heart. And God will replace them as the King of kings and the Lord of lords in your life. Let's pray. Father, I confess that I need to hear this truth every day. Every day. My heart is so prone to wander, I so quickly run to these idols that never satisfy. They, are, they pale in comparison to your riches, your goodness, your faithfulness. Father, would you help us to expose these idols for what they really are? And God, would we see you high and lifted up, and would you be that replacement, that which expels the idols of our hearts. Would you take your rightful seat in the throne of our lives? I pray that for myself and for each person here. In Jesus' name.
Amen.